find time to turn down the cell phones. Uh, before we start, we have uh, uh, two dedications this morning. Uh, the learning today is sponsored in loving memory of Dov Bear Ben Shimshon Alter. This is by the Friedson family, and uh, acknowledge uh, Ms. Friedson is here, and um, her daughter is here. So uh, we have uh, some representatives of the family, as well as uh, the 13th yard site of um, uh, Mrs. Block. Shirley. Sure. Rav Nathan Ben Simcha Sher. So, Yidu was a very big Tamachachim from London. So, we dedicate today's learning in his memory as well. Um, if you haven't figured it out, uh, tomorrow's like Baomer. And uh, past Sunday night, in the uh, past Sunday night, I. Um, Give a shear in the uh, Olnachama about some of the dangers that lurk uh, with regard to the bonfire situation. Um, I have a particular, pretty negative opinion about the bonfires on various levels. One is Shalom um, You shouldn't know from Tzarot, but people can get killed, can be killed, can be burnt, and if not burnt, can be severely wounded injured and injuries from burns happen every single year every single year and there's um, property damage and there are environmental concerns of a, of a very serious nature I have no doubt that if Chazal would be around uh, and would be uh, observing what we know today about the, uh, the ramifications direct ramifications of the Lagomer bonfires they would forbid it they would forbid it one, categorically um, because uh, the halakha has so much to say about uh, damage prevention and uh, so on, especially in light of last week's uh, terrible misfortune in the, in the floods where the phrase yebeseder is a common phrase in this country. And when I just mentioned to various people you know, about my concerns, uh, and it's not just my concerns, I already heard the fire department uh, issue strong warnings in light of the fact that of all things it's dry hot weather with high winds which is uh, the perfect uh, prescription for uh, to ignite uh, forest fires so with all that uh, people say yebeseda you know yebeseda and and then god forbid after a calamity then all of a sudden there'll be uh, investigations and so on and uh, I, I do fault the rabbinic and Torah leadership for not taking a, a very, very pu- out, a very public stand on this. Um, and even though I think that part of the reasons, even if they do agree with my sentiments, they feel that nobody's going to listen to them anyway. That does not excuse them from uh, publicly coming out and urging the authorities to curtail as much as possible um, this minarch, which just got out of hand. When one studies the history of the minarch, it was. It was never intended to be what it is today, but that's the history of Bin Hagim, the dynamics, um, and that's not what the Shir today is all about. But what I'm saying is I'm registering my public protest up front, so nobody should say there's an incaution. You have to be very, very, very careful. You know that kids have been taken to the hospital because of pallet burns from the mar- marshmallows. Okay? A lot of things have happened. A lot of uh, things that, unfortunately, I know that the fire department, they're working overtime tonight, and it's not that they're sitting at the stations. They're working, working very hard, and the uh, Mada people, Magendavidadon people, are working overtime tonight, and it's just not necessary. If uh, when Chazal saw that there was an issue that one Jew might carry a shaifer or a lulaf on Shabbat, they said nobody will take a shoifer and blow it on Rosh Hashanah on Shabbat, and no one will take a lulav and etrog on Shabbat. They had that power, that authority, to undo a biblical commandment. I mean, Rosh Hashanah is not uh, apples and honey, it's shoifer. And, and to say no to the, the central mitzvah because they were worried about somebody's act of Chil Shabbos, 
I mean, there's no question if they would see what's going on now, they would take a stand on many, many issues that are related to um, damage prevention and health I- issues, environmental and so on. But uh, it shows what kind of uh, orphaned de- generation we are today with uh, sorely needed, uh, you know, solid Torah leadership, which we don't have today. There are people um, wearing the garb of Gedolei um, Yisrael, but those who had the great fortune of knowing the Gedolim passed away in the last 30 years. So they were the Gedolim already, you know, the people who, who hailed from before the Shoah and who, Chazi Hashem, made it to our generation. And uh, you compare that to what we have today, we understand that there's a tremendous gap in what was and what is. It's a very, very sad commentary. Lag Baomer has different, different uh, connotations. Aside from the fact that we count it as a, the mitzvah the day after the 32nd, the day before the 34th, so it's just a, another day, um, just to put some uh, water on the fire, literally and figuratively, dampening the uh, enthusiasm for Lag Baomer, there is absolutely nothing mentioned in the Rambam about Lag Baomer. Nothing. The Yemenite community does not know of a Lag Boimer being any different than the day before, the 32nd of the Oimer, or the 34th. As a matter of fact, the Rambam does not have anything about the period of the Omer being uh, a period of partial mourning, of Avelut. does not have it at all. Because in the Gemara itself, although the story of Rabbi Akiva's students is recorded, it does not say a half a word that Am Yisrael took upon itself a period of mourning. Although it does enter into the picture slightly before the Rambam was born in the Gaonic period, but the, Ram- the communications weren't all there, and the Rambam in Spain never heard of it. He comes to North Africa, in, in Morocco, and ultimately in Egypt. He's never heard of it. It's just not there. And therefore, there's nothing special about Lagba Omer, and that which enters into the Jewish calendar through the Kabbalistic frequencies, the idea of Rabshim Bayochai, and so on, for sure never made it into the Mishnah Torah of the Rambam. The Rambam, as I heard once from our great Rebbe Rabban Lichtenstein Zatzal, is Kabbalah-free. There is no Kabbalah at all in the Mishnah Torah of the Rambam. It is 100% unadulterated halacha. It's only halacha. And uh, while the Shulchan Aruch, Rabbi Yosef Karo, is impacted by Kabbalah, he was one of the greats of Tzvat of the 16th century, but nevertheless, the Rambam, 400 years earlier, the 12th century, there's zero Kabbalah in the Mishnah Torah. And hence, that which today we know of the Rabshim Baichoy be a central figure in the Lakhoimer story, being his yard site, and one of the Gdolei Israel suggested that he must have been born on Lakhoimer also. That's a, you know, if you were tzaddikim born and die at the same day, it's said about Moshe Rabbeinu, it's said about David Amelech, that the yard site is also their birthday. So why not pin it on Rabshim Bayechoy already? So the, uh, but nevertheless, everything that's mentioned in the Zohar, zero reference in the Mishnah Torah of the Rambam. So, so you, you take a great like the Rambam, and you want to talk about like Boimir, there's nothing to talk about. <laughs> nothing to talk about, absolutely nothing. But nevertheless, Am Yisrael has made it to the 21st century, and uh, there is something to talk about. If you take so Sefer Toda'ah of Rabbi Leo Kito, a very popular book, so there he gives a variety of reasons for why Lagba Omer became a quasi Yomtov uh, and was probably the, the combination of all of the various very minor reasons added up to a large minor reason. Because there's not a really a major reason why we observe Lagba Omer. But one of the items that I caught wind of in the Sefer Toda'ah of Rabbi Leo Kitov many, many years ago so I decided to put it a little bit more formally today, and that is Lagba Omer as the Yom Tov of the man falling in the desert. Lagba Omer kichag liridat haman. It's not haman from the from the Purim story. Haman, the man. Right. And I went into Rabbeinu Google to research about man. It turns out that there is a food called manna, uh, and um, it's a, and there are those who try to explain that. Uh, it's a dried out sap from certain trees which uh, could have become an available food source for Am Yisrael and this was 
suggested by people who would like to take Akadosh Baruch hand out of the equation and somehow give a, a, a more a realistic touch to how Amisol survives 39 years in the desert, 40 years in the desert, um, to the extent that there are some restaurants throughout the world that man is on the menu. It's a, there's, there's something interesting, just, I'm just pointing out. that uh, So you can order uh, this as a side dish, uh, man. And uh, I just wondered if the medrash that says that anything that you had in mind, any set flavor that you thought about, whether that would work with these, uh, this man that you would order at a restaurant. Um, I think that would be very, very cute. But um, we know that the story... What? Can I eat on Pesach? Going to the Torah, the answer is yes, because it ended uh, Pesach time, Sefi Yeshua. So the first day of Pesach, they, they, they still had money. The, um, in the end of Parshat, not the very end, but towards the end of Parshat Bishalach, so Am Yisrael, they're complaining three times over. Once for water, second time for food, third time for water. These complaints were actually legitimate because you have to eat. You, know, you have to eat. And um, Chazal led us to believe that the problem was not so much that the request that they needed water, they needed food, then again they needed water, was how they asked. The Rav Zafan the Rav used to say, it's not what you say, but how you say it that makes all the difference. Vayilonu, vayilonu, they complained, complained. So the complaining was the issue, the tone, the way they brought it up, that was the problem. Not the fact that the, they were deeply concerned about water supply or food supply. They should be concerned. I mean, the Sadak, the took them out of Mitzrayim, and now what? Are we going to perish in the desert? And that's a legitimate concern. But the question is how you ask. Uh, so the second time around, they were asking for food. And the Kadosh Baruch said, it's fine, there'll be food. And uh, it, there were two types of uh, items on the menu. One was the slav, was a type of fowl, bird, or whatever. And the other was man. And man came in the morning in, the, in, a, in, a, in a very interesting way, the way the Torah describes, as you all remember, that uh, on a type of sheet of, of dew, on tal, it, um, it, it, it rested, and you went, opened your door, and you got your man. And uh, you scraped it up, and you had a, a measured out exactly per capita. Um, and then, of course, the, uh, the idea of Shabbat was introduced, that you got a double portion on Friday and uh, nothing fell on Shabbat. And Gadosh Baruch said, Al Ishmim Komo Don't go and seek out the man because it's not going to fall anyway. And of course, there were a few Hevraman that felt they're going to test, see if it's there anyway. But um, so this is the parsha of man. Now it comes back again in uh, Sefer Bamidbar, where you see that they're, they're complaining, they're still complaining about the man. They um, said it's coming out of our ears and. Uh, what they remembered was uh, the good old days in Mitzrayim. Like they forgot the fact that they were enslaved, worked day and night, no break. This they forgot. You know, we got good herring and we got good this and we got good that. This they remembered. But um, they, 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 they were already complaining that the man was tasteless and day in and day out uh, uh, the same menu. I, I can tell you that my father-in-law, Oliver Shalom, would not have complained for the same menu for 40 years. <laughs> he would have enjoyed it. Somebody coming out of Frankfurt, you know, he was trained at the... But you get used to it, and uh, he would not have complained. But most people, when they go to a restaurant, they try different things. And a um, man, somehow or another, Chazal wanted to teach us that it wasn't as boring as as you think, because you could have in mind whatever food that you had in mind. So if you happen to like, a, you know, burgers, burgers, bars, hamburgers with a, with a lot of uh, sauces and so on, so that's what it's going to taste like. So if that would be the case, why were they complaining? And the answer is that the psychological sensation is one thing, but the real sensation is something else. The, uh, we know that taste is a combination of, of both smell and sight. Smell and sight, that generates the taste buds. And the proof is, they did a test. They took an apple. Apples is, you know, generally sweet. Chop it up. You just, you know, peel it and chop it up. And then they took an onion. They peeled it and they chopped it up. So the texture is very, very similar. A chopped onion and a chopped apple. 
They took a person, they blindfolded him, and they gave him this and that, and they asked which was the apple and which was the onion. The person basically got it right. And then they, they, they gave a, a nose clip to somebody, but the person was able to see the two, and the person got it right. But then when they blindfolded the person and put a nose clip on, most of the people got it wrong. Now, how can you get that wrong? The difference between chopped onion and chopped apple. And the answer is that without having both sight and vision, a visual sighting of it, your taste buds are not activated. So it was just hit and miss. And, and most of them struck out. They were wrong. They were wrong. It's, a, it's an amazing find. And that's why many times if you have a cold and your nasal passages are blocked, you know, oh, today we're going out to eat. What a chaval. Tonight we have a wedding. What a chaval. I'm not going to be able to taste the food anyway. What does the nasal passages being stuffed have to do with it? Because it's an inhibitor of the taste buds. So, um, so this is important. This I say because the official name of the shir is Science and Torah, right? So I had to say something. But, but that's important. So exactly what happened in the Midbar... I, I don't know, from the Pshuta Shalmikra, from the simple reading of the Chumash, it was the same thing every day. They try to do things with it, as the Torah said, bake it into this, cook into that. Nishke Holfen didn't help much, and they were complaining. They were bitterly, bitterly complaining. And Moshe Rabbeinu takes the brunt of it. But nevertheless, at the end of Moshe Rabbeinu's life, he comes back to it, a third parsha of the Man, which is in Parshat Ekev. And uh, if you just jump to source number 7 at the bottom of the page, these apsukim from Dvarim Perichet, Kol HaMitzvah Asher Nochim Mitzavcha Hayom Tishmerun Nasot, Moshe Rabbeinu's last very long-winded five-week speech from Rosh Chodesh Shvat until the 7th of Adar, and he's giving over a review, basically a summary of Am Yisrael's activities of 40 years in the Midbar and the salient features of the Torah, so you will be able to inherit the land and so on. You shall remember this journey, this 40 year sojourn in the Midbar. You're going to remember it. And you know, you're going to remember not just the ups, you're going to remember the downs. You roughed it. You had a hard time. Bajor acknowledges that you had a hard time. And he now is going to apologetically explain to Am Yisrael why HaKadosh Baruch Hu gave them such a hard time. Leman anotcha. There was a dis- def- definite reason. Literally means to torture you, but it didn't mean torture in like in torture chambers. It means to make life very difficult for you. Lena sotcha. Nisayon. What does the word nisayon mean? It was a test. The question is, what does that mean? What was God testing? We know that the word pops up in Parshat Vayera, Velokim Nisat Avraham, with the Akeda. And the word nisayon pops up other places. What exactly is God's purpose in providing for a nisayon? What, what was Amisra being tested for? Lena sotcha, lada, to know. To know if you're going to observe the mitzvot. Why do I have to have a test to know if you're going to observe the mitzvot? Either you're going to observe it or you're not going to observe it. Where's the test? What does it come to prove? And he continues. And we, again, translating tortured you, because I, I can tell you from listening to many, many Holocaust survivors, one of the hardest things... One of the hardest things that, that uh, to, to, have, to have survived was the, 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 the hunger, the pangs that were constant. They just, they just couldn't shake it off, the hunger. And it's inui, it's torture. That's the word ra'av, hunger. Hunger? I thought they got food. Yeah, they got food. But how much food did they get? How much man fell on everybody's plate. No. So, well, they got something. In, in, in Parshat Peshalach, it says, Ve'ha'omer aseret a'efahu. Everybody received an omer's worth. Now, what does an omer mean? It's like a kilo, it's like a pound. It's a measure of weight. 
in Omer. And the Torah says in Parshat Peshalaf, Omer, Aseret Eifahu, it's measurable. You can measure it out because an Eifah was something that was known. Take ten of them, you have an Omer. That's, that's what it is. So where else do we know from Omer? Svirat. Omer. What does that have to do with the weight? It has to do with the offering, the korban, ha-omer, on the second day of Pesach. What's the Torah nicknames Shabbat, And you have to bring a korban, ha-omer. What was the korban, ha-omer, consisting of? It was clearly a korban, mincha. It's not an animal sacrifice. It's a grain sacrifice. But we know that from practically all of the grain sacrifices, the grain was wheat. The grain was wheat. Most of them were baked into matzah. Not just Pesach. The whole year, the Torah says, Ugot matzot, Ugot matzot. And you know what Uga means? It doesn't mean a cookie or a cake, as we use it in modern Hebrew. The word Uga means a circle. Ask every kid in kindergarten. Uga, Uga, Uga. It means a circle. And a matzah is baked in a circle. And a cake used to be baked in a circle. They didn't have rectangular pans and square pans. It was baked in a circle. So a cake became nicknamed an uga because the Torah referred to the matzah as ugot matzot. So they didn't have machine matzahs. It was a round matzah, like the hand matzahs till this very, very day. Or lahavda, la pizza, right? Comes out like that. Comes out round. That's how you make it. So ugot matzot. So 90% of the korban of mincha v'kashal pesach. There haven't been two that were demonstratively chametz. They were also kovanot mincha, but they were from wheat. They were chametz. One is the two breads on Chag Shavuot. It says chametz teafena, and the other is some of the breads associated with the Thanksgiving or uh, sacrifice, which is korban toda. Some of them. That's the reason Ashkenazim don't say mizmor toda on erev Pesach and all the days of Cholamot Pesach, because there's a chametz component in the korban Pesach, korban toda. Fine. So those are the exceptions. But what about oh, not wheat? So not wheat, you have two examples. One is the korban of the mincha of the sota, the isha sota, who's being accused of having an affair with somebody, but there's no real hardcore evidence. And she's brought by the husband to Beit HaMikdash for verification. And she's, uh, she has to drink an aqueous solution that includes scraping off the letters from the Torah of the Parshat Sota, and it includes bringing a korban mincha from Seorim, from barley. Now why barley? So the Gemara says, because human beings don't like to eat bread from barley. They like to eat bread from wheat. It's, uh, barley's coarse. Wheat is, is more easily digestible, and, 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 it's, and it tastes better, and we like it better. So the fact is, you know, I don't have to prove this, that we prefer a, a, a wheat's a baked product than a barley baked product. So, but who do you give the barley to? It's animal feed. It was always referred to as animal feed. So Mara says, just as she did an act of a behemah, so she brings a korban mincha, from the grain that's offered as food to behemoth, to animals. That's what it's called. She did a maaseh behemoth, so now she's going to bring a korban of the sa'orim. So sa'orim is animal feed. What does animal feed really mean? I guarantee you that in any of the concentration camps, if they would have offered barley-based bread, everybody would have eaten it. Which means if you have nothing else, you eat it. You're willing to eat animal feed if you're so hungry. So what is a korban omer all about? It's made from, it's taken from barley, and it's the minimum amount of barley that would sustain a human being for one day. So we know today that you measure energy in calories, and nutritionists will tell you you need about 1,200 calories a day to maintain your life. That's, that's the level. Below that is is malnutrition. Above that is being a chaza, right? <laughs> is eating too much. What's our problem? Our problem is we eat 3,000 calories a day and then we're on the treadmill <laughs> or doing jogging or whatnot or you know, diet this and diet that and diet yens. But uh, that's because modern man chooses food not because of nutritional reasons but because it tastes good and looks good. That's why we eat and we overeat. Uh, if you don't believe me, go to an American wedding and... Uh, Forget about the Baltashkas at the end of the day. But um, with people, it's just mind-boggling. Mind-boggling. But um, 1,200 calories a day. 
So just to put things into proportion, so unfortunately those who were brought to Birkenau and the first selection in the presence of the Yemach Shemov Dr. Mengele, took place. So 80% did not pass the first selection on that ramp of uh, Bear Canal, which meant that in 45 minutes they were already ashes. That's what it meant. We know all this today. 45 minutes. But the 20% who did successfully pass the first selection, so they were processed into the camp for all kinds of work detail. They were given rations of 450 calories a day. That was the food that they got. 450 calories a day, which means that the average life expectancy in Auschwitz for those who survived the first uh, um, selection was three months on the average. It's not that they were all of a sudden thrown into the gas chambers. They just dropped from starvation. That's what it was. So the man was not starvation diet, but it was pretty close to it. It gave the person the exact, exact amount of calories that is needed to sustain himself for a day but not an iota more. Which means you didn't get up from the table after a breakfast of mun and say, ah, what a good meal. Nobody had a sensation of being full. Nobody. And Moshe Rabbeinu is apologizing to Am Yisrael why this had to be so. Vaya'ancha, vaya'rivecha. I practically starved you. Vaya'achilcha et haman ashaloyadata and we fed you man, which you never were familiar with. Your forefathers never heard of this either. To teach you a lesson. Man does not live on bread alone. Man lives upon what comes out of God's mouth. That's what keeps man going. Not what keeps a person gets a food in the mouth. And, and that's a tough lesson. But Moshe Rabbeinu says, I have good news for you. You're going to cross the Yardane without me. And there, there's going to be a lot of food. It's going to be, if you just jump to Pasuk um, Chet uh, in the bottom, Eretz Chita Usaora, Gefen Teina Verimon, Eretz Zeit Shemen Udvash. This is a land of seven species of wheat and barley and fruits, beautiful fruits, which even the Baraglam agreed. They brought back beautiful fruits. That was never the issue. And the best news is, not only v'yachalta, will you eat, but v'savata. You're going to feel, ooh, that was a good meal. But don't forget. Uverachta et Hashem alokecha. Ala aretz ha That doesn't mean you're saying, thanking Kadosh Baruch for the food. You're thanking Kadosh Baruch for the land. Uverachta et Hashem alokecha. Al ha'aretz. Concerning the land. That's the translation. Allah Aretz, concerning the land that God gave you. So somehow or another, the 40 years was a prelude, was a type of apprenticeship time, getting yourself ready for a new type of existence that you'll only appreciate after you've gone through the 40 years of eating man. And the Rambam will tell us in source number 8, if we just flip the page on top, in the Marna Vuchem, the Rambam will tell us, Inyan hanisayon gamkein misupak ma'od bugadol sheba misufkei Torah. There are so many areas of Torah that are so unclear. I'm not going to use the word doubtful. It means unclear. There's something unclear of why a Kadosh Baruch is doing this or that. And the nisayon is most probably the most unclear of the messages and the Rambam goes on to tell us that there are two different types of uh, nisyonot in the Torah, but with regard to the man, he specifically tells us that this became vitally important, vitally important to give Am Yisrael, um, to, co- to fortify their courage and fortify their determination in becoming warriors when they're going to cross the Jordan River and it's not going to be on a silver platter. They're going to have to have a feeling that there's something to fight for. There's going to be something good at the end of the day. 
And indeed, we're going to have a land that will give forth Eretz Chitao Sorah, Gefen Tehinavarimon. And it's building up the pressure. The Rabbah believes that Nisayon is to create a type of pressure situation so that when the safety valve is thereby opened up, there'll be a tremendous amount of concentrated energy to fight the wars that will be necessary in Eretz Canaan. It's an unbelievable psychological insight into why HaKadosh Baruch Hu does this to Bnei Yisrael 40 years in the desert and, um, and to explain this concept of to test you. It wasn't a, a test where you're going to get an 80 or 90 or 100. That's, that wasn't the point. The point was it was somehow to invest in you some type of uh, uh, ability to, to focus more clearly on, on what the objectives of conquering Eretz Yisrael is all about. And you, you may think about this, you may take issue with it, but the Ramam says it. He says, he said that's his point of view on this. And what's interesting is that if we just go back to that first page, we'll see that what, it, what was the miraculous side of the, of the Mun falling. So let's go back to first source. Go top of the page, first source. This is from the end of Parshat B'Shalach. The first time Mun is mentioned in the Chumash, first time the Israel is complaining for food, and the response is Mun will fall. And there's a, a little postscript, and it says, Uvne Israel achluat Haman arbim shana, Bnei Israel ate the month 40 years, Ad Bo'am el Eretz Noshavah, till they arrived at the land, their final destination. Et Haman achlu, Ad Bo'am el Tzei Eretz Kenan. They ate it until the border of Eretz Kenan. These two phrases, Eretz Noshavah and Tzei Eretz Kenan, generates a discussion in the Gemara Masechet Kiddushin, exactly at what point does the month come to an end. So there's a little bit of an issue here. Uh, was it during Pesach, after Pesach, before Pesach of Yeshua already, um, but that's not my concern right now. My concern is, this is Parshat Bishalach. Parshat Bishalach in Chumash Shmot? Who's talking about 40 years in the desert? When does the 40 years in the desert pop up? But a Maraglim, which is Parshat Shlach and Sefer Bamidbar. And before that, the plan was to come in now, not to come in overnight. God did not want to bring us on the coastal road. The coastal road would mean through El Arish, through Gaza, and straight into Eretz Israel. Then that route would have allowed us to enter Eretz Israel 11 days after Yitzhak Mitzrayim. In Yiddish, that's to be translated the Kalas Sushen. The Kala was too nice. The other thing the Kalas Sushen, it was too close. Kikarovu. The Torah says, Eleven days later, they're going to already have to engage in battle? They're going to flee. Yesterday, they were slaves. Slave mentality is such that you don't have the ability to raise your hand against your master. You're so conditioned. How can, you, how can you raise your hand against the master? not going to work. You have to get it out of the system. So what was God's plan? Give them a year. A year. A little kafot in the desert. And after a year, they'll get it out of the system. And when was the plan to enter a territory Israel? Pashat Rabbeinu invites his father-in-law. Back up. You're coming with us. And then, The march is beginning. I mean, it's a, it's a great moment for Israel in the middle of Parshat Balucha. And then the roof caves in. One episode after the other of collapse, which culminates in the Miraglim. And, and HaKadosh Baruch realizes, with this generation... I can't do business. I can't do business. So they're going to have to perish in the desert. And we'll try again with the, with the young generation. So the decision wasn't made to have them exting- you know, annihilated in one swipe. But, as the Vilna Goyen pointed out, <coughs> a person is given 60 years to live in this world. 
If you lift to 70, make a big Kiddush. And if you lift to 80, make a gigantic Kiddush. Yemei shinotecha v'hem shivim shana, says the Vilna Goyen, that's already chesed. V'im b'gvod shmonim. David Melt doesn't even dream about 90. It's not, it's, not, it's, not, it's not on the radar, as they say. 70, 80, okay, p'sada. But 60 is what's given. And where does the Vilna Goyen derive this from? Because in the desert, everyone lived till age 60. Everybody was given their basic. Their basic. But nobody was given add-on. Nobody went till 61. So those who were 59 years old at the time of Yitzhak Mitzrayim died the next year at 60. Those who were 58 years old died in two years. And those who were 57 died in three years. But because the Torah says that the punishment began mi ben esrim shanavamala, 20 years and up, those 20-year-olds needed 40 years to arrive at age 60. And thereby, the punishment of 40 years in the desert was born. To allow the 20-year-olds to make it to age 60. And everybody dies at age 60. And the Medrash says that on Tisha B'av, which was the day of the Miraglim, people dug their own graves. That was their birthday party at 60. They parted, and that was the end. And at the, when it was over, and they dug their graves, and they didn't die. And they didn't know why. So they figured they made a mistake in Kiddush HaChodesh. So they lied in the grave the next night, and they didn't die. By the middle of the month, they saw, this is already the middle of the month, and the Xerah is over, this is the first reason of six why two ba'av is the yamtuf. Hamishasar ba'av. Pasku meite hamidbar. It came to an end. They realized that it came to an end. And they made a yamtuf on the 15th of Av. So you have. Um, so this is a chumash ba'midbar concern. How can this be already anticipated in Parshat Bishalach? So of course you can say, well, Sabizna, Kadosh Baruch gave it to Moshe Rabbeinu. Yeah, but there's still Pshut Shal Mikra. When you're reading it, you the reader, you're looking at this, and if you're learning Chumash according to the order, this doesn't make sense. Why am I being told they're going to eat the, the, the man? They're giving me a sneak preview that we're going to be in the desert for 40 years? Then what's the big deal in Parshat Shlach when they find out that it's true? They heard about this a long time ago. Last year we heard about it already. The answer is that there are psukim in the Chumash that actually belong to a later time context framework. But when Moshe Rabbeinu is told to put the Chumash together, he's told to put a Pasuk out of place for a variety of reasons. The best example that I have is the issue of Gid HaNasheh. Al-Kain lo yachlu b'nei Yisrael at Gid HaNasheh the question is, did Yaakov Avinu ever hear about this prohibition of eating from the sciatic nerve? Or not? There's a dispute in the Mishnah. But there's one opinion that says, Shenesar, um, you know, it was by Bissinai, just like every other prohibition, we received the, 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 the Avera of not eating from the Gid HaNasher at the time of Sinai from Moshe Rabbeinu. But Moshe Rabbeinu was told, take this Pasuk and do a cut and paste and put it on to Parshat Vayishlach, on the story of Yaakov and the, and the Malach and Esav and so on, so we'll understand something of the reason of what that was all about. So you have this kind of literary technique that Chazal acknowledged exists in the Chumash itself. There's no reason to assume that this is not the case with this. That, of course, it's the end of the Chumash, Masha who knows that we're here 40 years already. And we're going to be eating the man until the, we hit the border of Eretz Yisrael. We know that. And Moshe Rabbeinu was told, and by the way, put this Pasuk back in Sefer Shmot. So when you finish the first episode of reading about the man, you already know the end game, that it's going to last for 40 years. Even though they didn't know that in Parshat B'Shalach as yet. They didn't know that as yet. But Yavakshah. How does Ramban one sec. All the parshanim have different takes on it. They all have different takes. Okay. The uh, in source number two, you have the shelot tshuvot of the chatam sofer. Chatam sofer lived about 150 years ago in Prezburg. Rabbi Moshe Sofer, chatam is chidushei Torah Moshe Sofer. 
Sefer's Yiddish name was Schreiber. So there are Schreibers who, who go hail from the Chsam uh, Sefer. Hebrew name is Sefer. Chatam Sefer. And he wrote, Ulefi de Ita. Ita is abbreviated. It means there is. It's to be found. Bemidrash. Shemiyom shekala hacharara. Hara means the feed. The feed. F-E-E-D. The feed. The, 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 the supply of food. Shotziu mimitzrayim. They, they, they took matzahs with the Torah says they took matzahs with them and, and it, you know it came to an end they survived three days without bread hoping, anticipating that Kedosh Baruch has got to do something once he sees that we have the food alright, we'll see, maybe tomorrow okay, maybe tomorrow but at the end of the third day one second, something's wrong. If we don't get food soon, we're going to perish in the Midbar. That's what they complained about. So the Medrash does a calculation that even though the parasha in Bishalach with regard to month opens, that it's the second month, the first of the month, which is, I'm sorry, it's the 15th of the second month, Tedvav, the 15th of Iyar, but what kicked in now was three days that they moved without bread. That brings us to the 18th of Iyar, the day the month began falling. What's tomorrow's date? What's tonight and tomorrow's date? The 18th of Iyar, which is Lagba Omer. Lagba Omer. Ve'achakach yarad ha'man. Im kein haya horadat ha'man biyom Lagba Omer. Man began falling on Lagba Omer, and we should remember it. We should remember it for the good chesed that Kadosh Baruch Hu gave us. Now this is important that this becomes associated with Lagba Omer. Could have happened any other day, right? What's so important that it happens on Lagba Omer? So first let's talk about the miracle quality. In source number three, there's a Mishnah. It's this Shabbat's Perak, Perak Hay, Perkei Avod. It says, Asarat Varim Nivru Berev Shabbat Ben Ashmashot. Like ten things were created on the Erev Shabbat of creation. When? Ben Ashmashot. That's ready after sundown, but it's not yet Tzeta Kochavim. We call it in halachic jargon, Safek Yom, Safek Laila. You know, a child that's born on a Friday evening between sundown and Tzeta Kochavim. So on the one hand, you can't do the Brit next week on Shabbat because maybe he was born on Friday. So then it's not an eighth-day baby. It's a ninth-day baby. And a ninth-day baby, there's no Brit on Shabbat. But you cannot do the Brit on Friday because maybe he was born on Shabbat. Then he's a seven-day-old baby. So what do you do? You make the Brit on Sunday. You have no choice. I have a nephew, one of my brother's sons. So I remember at the Brit, my, my brother said at Vartaira, he said on Matzah Shabbos, the, the, the problem was so complex... Because we know there is a machloket as to when is Seta Kochavim. So this baby, my nephew, was born, at, according to one shita, he was born on Friday, another shita, he was born on Shabbat, and a third shita, he was born, Benesh Mashot, which means pushed to Sunday. So when's the Brit? Who do we him like? So I remember Matzah Shabbos, my brother called Boston, called the Rav, and um, the Rav said, Suffolk, the right, the Chumrah, and the Brit will be on Sunday. So my brother spoke about this, and his Vartaira at the Brit, and he said, this baby was born into a machloket. I mean, my gosh, the kid didn't do anything. He was already embroiled in a machloket right away. What, What's what? his personality like today? He's not, he's, not a, he's not somebody who is machloket at all. He's the one who donated a kidney to my brother and saved his life, all right? And he's coming on Aliyah this summer. Okay, so he's a lot of schuyot. A lot of schuyot. With his machloket and all. <laughs> he got over that machloket. <laughs> yeah. So you have this business that, like, there was almost an afterthought on God's part. What do you mean? A Kadosh Baku f- forgot to do a few things? It's like, you know, we have this all the time, right? At the last minute, you, 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 you forgot to pack something. That, that's human beings. What does it mean? A Kadosh Baku, like, oh, yo, 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 it's Shem Shabbos, it's almost Shabbat. I forgot to do a few things. We've got to cram it in. Ten things. And what are the ten things? It says, Elohim, Pi Ha'aretz, 
Oy, he's going to oh, split, open up the, the ground and have Kairach's family sink in. Got to, you know, plug that in. It's almost like a computer. You have to plug it into the to the computer. Pia air. So that has to do with the bear of Miriam that there's going to be uh, water. Pia Atom, the mouth of the of Bilam's donkey, who's going to start talking. Well. I think it wasn't only Bilam's donkey. You know, a lot of other donkeys who started talking. Say that. Vakeshet. What does that mean? It means the rainbow? Those who was an afterthought based on the rainbow? And you could give a whole shira on all of the ten, but I'm just going to look at the next one. Man. Man was created at that moment. It was one of the ten. Then it says the mate, that's the, the stick of my Rabbeinu. So what, what does that mean that man was created? On Erev Shabbat, Bein Hashmashot. So the Rambam tells us in his Mishnah commentary in source number four, in the introductory eight chapters before Pirkei Avot, we call it a book in, within a book, Shmona Prakim, the eight chapters. And in the eight chapter I said, There, there are the, many, many people who did not believe in the creation world. Created world. They believe in the eternity of the universe. That happens all the time. It's nothing new. People pipe up with those theories. Kadosh at the moment of creation, pre-programmed all of the laws of nature, including aberrations. Including aberrations. Which means, if there's what looks to, appears to us as an aberration from the laws of nature, says the Rambam, that's also natural. It might be very extreme, just as we know there's weather, normal weather, you know. It's like somebody said, if you live in Los Angeles and you're a weatherman, you don't have to be a Grace of 90% it's going to be the same weather. Some areas in the world, you know, you have to be a little bit more on the ball. And then there's what they call in the, the weather stations uh, extreme weather. Extreme weather, you know, tornado, earthquake, this, I'm saying that, extreme weather. So extreme weather is also natural, except that it doesn't happen every day. So Ramam says, Bencha davar tadir, davar that which happens on a regular basis. We call this nature, something that happens. Once in a blue moon. Uh, I, there is such a thing as a blue moon, right? We saw it recently. Happens, v'hu hamofet. That whenever the Torah talks about ototu moftim, so we translate this as miraculous things. The Ramam says, that's also nature, except that we give it a different name because it's rare, very, very rare occurrence. Ulefika hamar, shebiyom ha-shishi husam ba'aretz shetishka bekorach vadato. On the sixth day of creation, it was already programmed that there will be a type of seizure in the geology exactly at the place that Korach's going to be there with his family and it's going to cause a type of split. I don't know if you ever saw the movie 1905 of the earthquake in San Francisco. It's exactly what happened and people just fell in. Fell in just like Korach. A lot of people were killed in that earthquake. And the Rambam says that the bear will, will, will give out water, that the, the donkey will start speaking, and all of them. You know what the Rambam is saying? That all miracles are anchored in laws of nature. All miracles. The only difference between the miracle and the natural is whether it happens regular or it's rare. That's all. And he brings a proof from this Mishnah that were created Part built into creation, no different than every sunrise and sunset. Part of the laws of nature. The Ramban has a completely different take, opposite take on this. The Ramban says, not that every miracle is really Mother Nature, but every natural phenomenon is miraculous. He takes it the other way around. And he says, what's the difference between, he calls it two different types of miracles. For the source five. The famous miracles, those are necessary. What are the famous ones? Kriyas uh, Yamsuf. 
That's by the way, Rambam believed that Kriyat Yamsuf was also natural, anchored in natural law. And that is, the Torah says there was a strong wind that came and blew it apart, and, and the wind itself caused a drying effect, and so on. You, you can do a laboratory experiment at home, take a big pot, fill it up with water. If you have a high-powered fan, hold it on top of it, and you'll see Kriyas Yamsuf right in front of your eyes. It'll happen. You can, because of the pressure of the water, of the fan, of the air. And, and to a certain degree, the Ramam says, this is what happened. So why do we say it's a miracle? The Ramam said it was the timing that it happened. Bidiyuk, when Am Yisrael had to have that happen, that's what a miracle was. It was in the timing, but uh, not in terms of the phenomenon. Whereas the Ramban says, Chris Yamsov, all these things are super duper natural miracles, but it comes to train us when you accept the fact that God can suspend rules, laws of Mother Nature, then He's the Balabayat of nature itself. Because only the Rishut Hamachokeket, the, the authority that can legislate, can suspend legislation. And if a Kadosh Baruch Hu legislated the law of gravity and all of a sudden there's a suspension of law of gravity, you know that whoever suspended it is the Balabayat of it, created it. And that's there to teach us that actually a Kadosh Baruch Hu created all of nature and Ramban calls those, those the hidden miracles. So you have the revealed miracles where the Medrash says about Kriyat Yamsuf, Ra'ata shivcha layam mashalo ben a, a maid saw the saw Gadlut, saw saw saw, saw uh, Kadosh Baruch Hu's presence greater than the Prophet Yecheskel. You don't have to bring a big chacham to see it. But in the everyday, that's that's a trick. That's that's a challenge. And and the reason that we have all these super duper miracles is to train us that Kadosh Baruch Hu is responsible for the very very natural. And he's and the Ramban believes that the more ongoing the miracle, the more natural it becomes. And therefore he contends that the greatest miracle of all in the desert was Mun. Because Mun fell for 40 years. Kriyat Yamsuf was one shot deal. But Mun fell 40 years. A kid who was born in the Midbar, and in the 39th year, what was breakfast, opened the door, and his cornflakes was on the, on the mat in the form of Mun. He thought that's the way it is. He was that that's the way it is. It's nature. One falls with them. Why? I don't know. Why? I'm not a scientist. One falls. Finished. Became natural. And that which becomes natural is the greatest miracle of all. And the Ramban says, that's why we say, every day, to acknowledge the miraculous side of the creation of nature. And what does all have to do with Lagbaimel? So we said already that, according to the Khatam Sofer, quoting a Medrish, that the month started falling on Lagbaimel. Lagba Omer was the first day that Bnei Yisrael realized that they're moving into a, a very unusual existence. They are going to occupy their time with one and one thing only, Torah study. There is no canyon in the desert, there's no bowling alleys, there's no, no sports, no, no, no cable TV, no nothing. Nothing, nothing. What is there? Torah study. On all levels, on all levels. First, Moshe Rabbeinu thought he was going to give a shir klali every day. His father-in-law says, drop it. You know, it's not going to work. People can't hear you. Break it down to, you know, some people can hear a lecture with 100 people. Some people need 10 people, more personal attention. It was an educational system that Yitro suggested, and he gets a lot of credit for it, a lot of credit. And that's how Torah was being studied, and that's what they did. Men, women, and children on different levels studied Torah. What about the clothing? What about shopping? So... Back in source number seven, in Pasuk Dalit, Simlatcha lo batami alecha, raglacha lo batzeka ze'arbaim shana. Forty years, you don't have to change your shoe. Can you imagine, ladies, no changing of the shoes? I remember when I was in Tinek two weeks ago for Shabbat, I took note how many women came to shul walking in their sneakers with a plastic bag for their Shabbat shoes to put on before they walk into shul. I took note of that. I never saw it in Olachama. Never. If you want to walk to shul in, in sneakers, nobody's going to throw you out. Nobody's going to look the other way even. You know, just dress the way you want and that's it. But, you know, we need good walking shoes, but you can't come into shul with walking shoes, you know. So you have to have 10,000 pairs of shoes. So in the Midbar, the one shoes that you left Mitzrayim lasted for 40 years. And, and, and the clothing, no shopping, no fashion, none of this stuff. Thank God you're saying. <laughs> so, so, so what did they do? 
They didn't have to cook. They didn't have to prepare anything. The food was readily edible. The man. So they were busy studying Torah. Now, that's going to change. That's one of the messages that Moshe Rabbeinu is telling them. But, you know, you're going to have to work for this. You're going to have to work for this. No doubt. It's going to be a different world. The party's over. You're going to have to work. And there's a big machloket. If you look at the second page. And now, you know what? Just go back to the first page for a second. Let me just make one more, amplify this with source number six, which I just threw in at four in the morning today, so I'm going to use it. Because I read it the whole page because of source number six. Right? Uh, Mishnah Halachot is Rabbanasha Klein. He's a passed away just a few years ago. He lived in remote Dalit in the neighborhood called Ungvar. I remember him from Borough Park, a very, very big Hamachacham in Poseik. Uh, and he wrote uh, many volumes called Mishnah Halachot. He signs it. Menashe HaKatan the word Klein in Yiddish Klein means Katan he signs it Menashe HaKatan so he was, it was a long question but I just lifted out of context something he said about miracles Ube'emet in source number 6 Ube'emet Yesh Neminenusim there are two types of miracles Nes Shehi Bria Chadasha Shekadosh Baruch Hu Borei Yesh Be'ayin a miracle that God created something from nothing this is against the Rambam against the Rambam for sure against the Rambam for sure, for sure, for sure. Where he believes that there is such a thing as a supernatural miracle that defies the world, the laws of nature. Kemo Rashbi, Reb Shimon Bar Yuchai, Shebaralo HaKadosh Baruch Charuv Umayan Mayim Bimara Ve'iridat Man Min HaShamayim Bamidbar. In one breath, he puts together the story of Reb Shimon Bar Yuchai going into the cave for 12 years, and being fed miraculously by a, 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 a boxer tree, a charuv tree, and some type of mayan mayim that appears, some type of water spring source that appears, and he and Rabbi Elazar's son are, are saved for 12 years because of this uh, very supernatural phenomenon. And in the same breath, he says, like man fell from Shemayim for those 40 years in the desert. So Rav Nachman Klein certainly saw them, saw Rav Shimon Bar in the, in the context of the type of miracle of man. In one breath he says it. And let's remember that Rav Shem Baichai's Yorzeit is Lagba Omer, and Lagba Omer is the first day that man begins to fall. Which means it's a type of existence that had its time and place, but Rav Shem Baichai actually believes can continue. If you look at the second page, source number nine, in the middle of the page, Tanu Rabbanan, what does that mean? And you shall gather your grain. And we say it in the second parish of Shema every day. Should not leave the Torah. I'll just continue the pasuk in Yeshua Parakalaf. Day and night you should be engaged in Torah study. You mean literally? Day and night? How can that be? Talmud Lomar, Torah says, No, 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 no. There's an allowance to leave the Beit Midrash to go to work and bring in your food. You just have to, Derech Eretz doesn't mean here uh, behavior, although that's always a good idea. Here it means source of parnasah, of sustenance. Just do the way others do it to bring in their living, agriculture. Divri Rabbi Shmael. Rabbi says, I mean, you mean we're going to allow people in the, in, the, in, the, in the plowing season, in the planting season, in the reaping season, in the winnowing season, to leave the Beit Midrash? Torah, Matiana, when is he going to study Torah? He's going to be busy three quarters of the year, maybe more, 90% of the year. Ella says, Rabbi Shem Baruchon, Vizbanji Yisrael Osimrat Sanosha Makom, when Am Yisrael is following the will of God, Melachtan Naset Aidei Chayrim, it's going to be dealt with by others. I always say, Achayrim is the gematria called father-in-law. Maybe one day I'll even figure it out and it'll work. Somebody else is going to take care of it. And he brings a pasuk, Babdu Zarim, Urutzanachem. But Bancha ain't Yisrael, when you're really out of line, you're going to have to do the work by yourself, as it says, Vyasafta Deganecha. Of course, everybody yells at this one second. Vyasafta Deganecha is said in the context of Vihaya im Shamoa Tishmuel Mitzvotai. How can you say this? that it's a klala. 
How can you say it's a curse? How can you say it's a punishment? So there are different uh, reasons for it. I don't have time for it right this second. But um, Rabbi Shimbari Choy is of the opinion that leave everything and just engage in Torah study. We just jump down to the last line of Source 9, Amar Abaye. Those many, many followed Rabbi Yishmael, the first view, and they were successful, both in Parnassah as well as in Torah. It doesn't say Harbe, it doesn't say a lot. It means some people took upon themselves. And they were not successful. Neither in Parnassah, because they didn't work, nor in Torah study, because they were busy worrying about where they're going to eat. So basically, the Gemara comes up with the conclusion here that Shibbai Choy's policy is not a good policy, certainly not for the population at large. If anything, for what's called Yechidei Zgula, the individuals. Well, let's look at source number 10, in the Mechilta. In the Mechilta it says, um, it tells us that we get to Eretz Yisrael, we're going to have to be engaged in work. We look at the second line, People are going to grab their fields. Adam bekarmo, person is vineyard. I'm going to make like hakafot, make them go around and around forty years. The Torah will be absorbed into their bodies because they'll be doing nothing else but. Torah study, so that when they get to Eretz Yisrael and have to leave the confines of the halls of study, they will nevertheless be um, uh, in, uh, completely uh, absorbed with, with Torah knowledge and information. They'll be able to uh, be able to live a normal existence the way Hakadosh Baruch Hu wanted. Mikan Hayarub Shimon Bar Yochai Omer Lo Nitna Torah Lidrosh Ela. Haman. Oh, that is a reason why the Torah was given at this generation, that the man, because they needed to be separated from all worldly activities, to be totally engaged in Torah study. And that's something that, you know, you can't ask for, for generations to come. And this Rav Shem Shonafal Hirsch, in Zos 11, said it so perfectly in his Perush to Parshat Toldot. When the children of Yaakov in Parshat Vayechi gathered together to hear the blessings of their father, Yaakov is looking at the future of the nation. He didn't just see, you know, Rabbonim and Rosh Hashivas, Kohanim and, and Torah scholars and teachers. There were the Levim, yes, but there was also those who would be involved in, in politics and government, the monarchy. There would be a Shevet who would be involved in commerce. Farmers and agriculture. They're going to be warriors. He was looking at the whole picture. Am Yisrael has many, many different sides to it. And all the various ways it would develop. He gave brachot to all of them. Rav Shanshafal Hirsch says, in order to have a healthy society, you have to have all of the above. You have to have people, for sure, who are going to be involved in religious and spiritual pursuits. But no less important are those who are going to deal with defense and deal with agriculture and deal with industry and high-tech and deal with everything that we're dealing with today. And only then we have a chance of having a healthy society that's going to bring about. This could be one of the reasons that in the late 19th century, when Rav Kalisha who was one of the early religious Zionist greats before Rav Kook, approached Rav Shamshafal Hirsch in a letter and tried to enlist him to join the religious Zionist movement, Rav Hirsch declines and does not see a place yet for Am Yisrael. It is possible his assessment of Am Yisrael would not be that kind of nation yet. They were not ready to provide for the all-encompassing picture of what uh, Eretz Yisrael would need. And hence, he, I, he honestly believed we weren't ready for it. 
And even the Rav Zechariah Levracha, who was so much later than Sham Shofal Hirsch, in the 1960s, when Eretz Yisrael was still struggling to a large degree, moving from infancy towards adolescence in the 60s. Uh, the Rav spoke at the Mizrahi conventions and he saw the role of the Mizrahi as upgrading you know, the Torah in Eretz Yisrael and rebuilding Torah and everything had to do with Torah and, and the Rav Shebek Dushah. And he always would say that you know, science and technology, leave it to the West. You know, well, today, in 70 years of Medinat Yisrael, I look back and I look up and I say, well, take a look. We have both. We actually have a bracha of all the shulchanot. Yes, I think we did a very, very good job. There's always more to do in terms of Torah rehabilitation. In pure numbers, it's miraculous. Miraculous what's been accomplished. But um, even in other areas. But take a look what's going on here. We've become a, a global power in, in, in high tech, a regional superpower in the military. Who would have believed this? Who would have believed this? Mamash. And, 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 and there's still, as uh, Rabbi uh, uh, Weiss from Ranana wrote, and the best is yet to come. You know? Just uh, really have to be optimistic here and hope Kadosh Baruch Hu gives us all the health and the good health and the strength uh, to be a, a participant in this. And uh, this Lag Boima, without the fires, should be a great light for Am Yisrael. <laughs> I'm going to ask you that question. Yes. What, 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 what,